Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm once again joined by Dr. Christine Coe from Yale School of Medicine. This week, we discuss her many publications covering a range of topics from the role of cognitive bias to using psychology to optimize healthcare. Let's start by discussing the paper that you recently co-authored entitled Sentiment Analysis of Tweets on Alopecia Areata, Hydradenitis Suppurativa and Psoriasis, Revealing the Patient Experience. You know, I love this kind of stuff. I learned that the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta had analyzed Google searches such as what is flu to map outbreak areas. Please tell us about this paper and how other social media can be tools for good and not evil. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I well, it's it's rather funny because yeah, I agree. I'm I'm actually not very much of a social media gal. Uh but um Irene Lynn was the you know, designer and first author and sort of the conceptual you know, creative mind behind that paper. And I think, and actually, so Irene Lynn and I connected through social media. That's how we have been connecting. And so while I'm not a huge fan of social media, it's part of, I think, the fabric of life these days. You mentioned in my introduction that I have two kids. They're both... Well, my son is almost a teenager. My daughter's 15. My son is 12, soon to be 13. And they are all over these different social media things. They are always rolling their eyes at me because I don't quite know <laughs> how to use them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rolling, rolling their eyes at you is, is, is actually, it's almost, it's like a reflex. <laughs> yes. The parenting yes, reflex. Good luck with that. <laughs> so... But um, I realized I, I try to, I, I call myself in my head a dabbler because I think that this is the power and the good of social media, as you mentioned, is in the way that it can connect people. And I am glad that Irene Lynn contacted me and um, asked me to be involved with this paper of hers because it did give insight that there are a lot of patient stories on social media as well. And it can give a window definitely into their experience. And I think that as healthcare, especially with COVID, has really been stretched and strained and has sort of lost time more and more, even though healthcare has really been sort of losing time, Social media is maybe a way, like a paper like this, to have a little bit more insight into the patient experience and the things that doctors and the healthcare system as a whole should be aware of. I, I, I hope that we do see these tools start to be used for good to sort of uh, um, balance up the weighing scales because there's a lot of things. I mean, yeah. Just the other day, I was crossing the road at a pedestrian crossing, and I was nearly mown down by a guy who was driving along texting. And I'm normally a fairly placid individual. I actually chased after him to, uh, and at the traffic lights gave him a piece of my mind. But I mean, 
yeah, it would be good to see some good uses for uh, for these uh, for these technologies. So, I came across this term, visual perception, and its role in your field. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, I dermatology and dermatopathology. You know, obviously looking through a microscope, but really dermatology is looking at someone's skin, and so really what I see but really then what my brain perceives from what actually crosses my visual field is really important. And when I started to think about visual perception, meaning the how of diagnosis. So when I look at something on someone's skin or someone else looks at it, how do I know what that is? Or when I look at something under the microscope, really how does my brain then pop up with a diagnosis that hopefully is right rather than mm-hmm. wrong? So, and I realized it's interesting, you know, I, I'd never, with all the training that I had, um, I'd never really thought about how that happens. And when I realized that I don't really know how it happens, it sort of was a corollary that if I could figure out how it happens and how it happens for, say, the best mind, um, I would be a better teacher as well. I would be a better diagnostician myself, but I would be a better teacher because I would be able to streamline and make it more efficient in terms of how to teach someone how to recognize something on someone's skin or under the microscope. So visual perception uh, is part of cognitive psychology. um, And it's really not only important to dermatology and dermatopathology, which clearly are, you know, sort of visually based, but really any medical field, you know, really has a strong visual component to it. And actually really human beings just in terms of navigating life, you know, our visual perception and other perceptive abilities are very important. So, the f- most fascinating thing that first I learned was, do you, are you familiar with the invisible gorilla, the classic cognitive psychology experiment with a gorilla and basketball? I'm not. So it's on YouTube and um, it's copyrighted. So, um, but if people just are interested and aren't familiar, just search like YouTube gorilla experiment, cognitive psychology, and it will pop up. But um, um, Christopher Chabri is one of the psychologists who was involved with that experiment. And um, I won't sort of give the punchline away on that, but basically we do not notice everything around us at any given moment. If we did, we would be overwhelmed and not able to function. So definitely even in a dermatology clinic when I'm examining a patient, but also at my microscope, I'm not noticing everything, even on the patient or on that slide. And so my brain, even though it crosses my visual field, my brain is minusing things out and just automatically saying it's not important before it reaches my full consciousness. And I think we all know, have that experience, meaning that um, we might have seen something and we walked by it. And then, you know, 30 seconds later, I think, oh, yeah, why was that person, you know, in that blue shirt doing that? You know, so it just sort of takes a little bit. We've at first discarded it, but we definitely saw it. So um, I realized that my brain does, everyone's brain does it. And 
I don't want my brain to minus out the key finding for a patient or the key finding for a slide. And so how do I become better at making sure that doesn't happen and being as efficient as possible in seeing the most important feature on a patient or a slide to sort of get to the diagnosis in the most precise fashion possible. So that's how I really got interested in perception, visual perception, because that I think it just, I thought, and I realized it's true that it would make me a better doctor. Absolutely fascinating concept. Um, sort of a, akin to, I don't know, mindfulness, um, just being thoughtful about how you're doing what, not just doing what you do, but being thoughtful about uh, doing what you do. And I guess this might follow on from it, if I'm understanding correctly. You've done research on cognitive bias, which you talked about on a webinar, which can be found on the EMJ website. And we'll put a link into the show notes to that. Please explain cognitive bias. What does that mean and its implications in your specialty? Yeah, so, yeah, you're right. So absolutely right. I love it. I So I got interested in visual perception because I was just trying to be a better doctor and I realized that I'd never really thought about, well, how do I know something? And, you know, sort of the opposite of that would be, how would I know that I'm wrong, you know, without someone telling me? Um, because the thing is, too, I think you probably know this and many doctors know this, that when you're in training, ideally, right, you have a teacher who's kind of like a coach telling you, no, you should have noticed this or you missed that. And so you kind of have a good feedback mechanism of someone teaching you what you didn't see or maybe what you needed to see or what you de-emphasized, um, whether your brain did it for you or you thought about it and you discarded it. But when you're in practice more and more, even in academia, but definitely say if you're in a solo private practice and you're by yourself, there's less of that kind of feedback mechanism to know, you know, did I really see what I should have seen? And so I kind of went down the path of visual perception and then auditory perception and then emotional perception. And meanwhile, I read the book by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, where he talks about metacognition, right? Thinking about your thinking. Yes. And so um, that is related to cognitive bias that are thinking fast patterns, which we all have, that is cognitive bias. And cognitive bias, I should emphasize, is actually not bad because I think nowadays bias, we just think, oh, that's bad. Let me get rid of it. And implicit bias, ideally, we should get rid of. And racial bias, you know, gender bias, you know, ableist bias, those kinds of things are considered negatives largely. But cognitive bias, so the bias is maybe an unfortunate word these days because it triggers people. Let's just get rid of it. But we could not function without cognitive bias. But so just like I was saying with visual perception, how do we maximize having the good cognitive bias that helps us get through the day and be efficient and more kind even and get rid of the sort of negative cognitive bias that leads us astray. So that is what I've been sort of struggling with more recently in terms of cognitive bias and really how that relates to dermatology and being the best dermatologist. And so simple example I think would be just, you know, um, 
when you see a patient and you think, okay, I'm going to give you this medicine to treat your rash. And um, my cognitive bias would be the, the, you know, the, right, the joke is always, oh, just give it a steroid, right? A topical steroid. That's what dermatologists do. But so even there's so many steroids, right? And most dermatologists, they just have, you know, their go-to, say, you know, medium potency steroid, and they'll just prescribe that, you know, I do the same thing. And that's cognitive bias. It's just available to me. It's called an availability bias. And so that's what I reach for. And same thing happens to say an internist who uses, a, you know, the vast majority of time, a certain anti-hypertensive medicine, you know, as first line. I mean, there are guidelines as well, but we all kind of have our favorites and that's an availability bias. And that helps us get through our day. You know, we don't have to overthink like, oh, there's a list of 10 steroids, which one do I give? And, you know, like, it's sort of just, okay, this is the one I typically give for this condition, for this um, type of patient, for this type of rash, you know, we all have, then that's cognitive bias. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating. So um, as, as I think about how you just don't educate um, our colleagues, you, you wrote a book entitled how to improve doctor-patient connection using psychology to optimize healthcare interactions. Dr. Mark uh, Abdel-Malek, who's uh, a news reporter with ABC, said, this book is about the magic of hope and shows us how hope really is within reach for all of us. At a time when there are so many constraints in medicine, this book wonderfully illustrates layers of understanding and examples for doctors and patients on the journey of building transformational relationships with each other and their loved ones. Can you please tell us more about what this book's about? I wish I could tell you I'd finished it. I haven't, I've started. What inspired you to write it and the importance of the relationship between doctors and their patients, which is a topic very, very dear to my heart. I personally believe as doctors, sometimes the best thing we can do for our patients is just be there, frankly, just be someone for them to talk to, because we can't help everyone. So over to you. Yes, I, I love what you just said. You know, sometimes all we really, all the patient really wants is for us to be there. And also, let me say before I forget, thank you. I feel honored that you have started to read my book. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I, so this book came out of the fact that I am so bad at this stuff, actually. Um, I've, you know, all doctors, we train for so long because there's so much actually to know and more and more medical knowledge is just exploding like all other, you know, areas and facets of knowledge. And, um, you know, I really made and still make a lot of mistakes. And I have to admit that this book really came out of failure, actually. Failures in what I would see visually, you know, my visual perception, but really failures because um, my son, my second child, is actually deaf. And so for his journey, we had to explore auditory perception. And there was a light bulb moment for me where I was talking to another parent and she was saying, oh, you know, for them to, for our children to hear a noise, we really have to help them pick out the figure from the background noise. 
And it was this light bulb moment because that's what we are doing when we see things. There's a figure and there's a ground. And the ground, the background is what I was sort of referring to earlier, everything that the brain minuses out as non-important. And so she was saying, oh, you know, we have to teach our kids to be able to do that with voices too, right? Um, minus out the background noise that's not important and focus on the words that someone is saying as the figure. And meanwhile, at the same time, then my daughter who was in kindergarten came home with a mood meter because she was learning social and emotional learning at school as a kindergartner. And the task for the week and even I think maybe, you know, forever was um, help me understand my feelings, mom. You know, <laughs> there's this meter like green, red, yellow, like whatever. And uh, at first I thought, okay, this is easy. You know, in my head, I was thinking I can help her with this. And I realized I'm so bad at knowing what I'm feeling in a given moment. She was much better than me even then. So when um, Dr. Abnormalik Malik said that this book is about the magic of hope, I think it's really, to me, about, yes, the magic of connecting and sort of reconnecting when you fail when I fail. And so as a doctor, oftentimes I don't do the right thing for the patient, meaning even if it's really the patient wanted me to be there with them in that moment. And instead I'm like typing away on the electronic medical record and not picking up on the emotion that they have and I fail them. So I wrote this book really sort of initially, I didn't realize, you know, it would become the book that it became, but, um, it was to sort of address these failures that I have and to continue to hope and I guess ultimately live in an ideal world and hope that that ideal can come to fruition. And um, I guess, well, number one, having the humility to, to state that you failed, uh, I think is really, it's, it's a very, very good starting point for and not just for practicing medicine. I fly airplanes for my avocation. And someone once said to me, how do you know when you've made a really great landing? And, you know, the joke in aviation is a good landing is one you walk away from. A great landing is one where you get to use the airplane again. And yeah. uh, I said, when I've made a really great, a perfect landing, I'll tell you, because I've only been doing it for several decades. And uh, You can always improve. You can always be better. So I'm looking forward to... Um, to reading further. There was a book, I don't know if you ever came across it, I'm blanking on the author. It's called The Doctor, the Patient and Their Illness. And it's about the relationship between those three things and how we in interact with people at a time that they're not just suffering from a disease, but they're suffering from dis-ease and mm -hmm. how we sort of um, act as their, their advocate, if you will. Are, are you familiar with the book? No, I haven't. I'll have to. Gosh, I've got to try and dig out in the, the, the recesses of my brain. So anyway, um, tell us about some challenges to human, to humanize medicine in dermatology and, and dermatopathology uh, in particular. So in dermatology and dermatopathology in particular, but across medicine, I think the biggest challenge to humanize medicine is that we're trained to fix problems. And um, 
And so when you mentioned disease just now and dis-ease, I think that it's, we can't think of human beings as problems, right? Like even like say me and my children, sometimes I find it overwhelming to be a mom. But when I, I can't be thinking of my children as just problem one and problem two, you know, um, they're human beings. And so in dermatology, we see a very high volume in the outpatient setting. Um, we're predominantly, at least in the U.S., an outpatient specialty. And I think that time factor is a huge problem in terms of humanizing what we do in dermatology. Because for me, when I feel time pressure and get stressed about time pressure, I will force myself, right? I, I need to become more efficient. But I think that becoming more efficient, right, will just be, okay, what's the problem? And I, I, then I even more am laser focused on what the problem is. And I will miss cues on, you know, what the patient's body language is. Um, I might brush off, right, without truly intending to, but I will. I'll brush off if they give me some important especially say emotional information and I'll just, my habit, my thinking fast, you know, my thinking fast way of doing things will be thinking that's not important to this problem of this big tumor that's on their arm. Um, but the reason that um, that becomes a problem is because I realize more and more in doing some of the research I'm doing and reading the books that I'm reading is that Emotion is really what humanizes us and and connecting and sort of co-creating and synchronizing and resonating together with a certain emotion. And so if inadvertently or, you know, maybe not really on purpose, but because I am running behind, I ignore a patient's emotion, they will not get the best care. Um, and I'll give an example of this because you think skin cancer, I do a biopsy, I cut it off and send the patient to get it treated, you know, mainly surgically is the main modality still in the U.S. What's the problem, right? Like, why does there need to be any emotion in that at all? It's that, that seems, that alone even seems pretty um, obvious, right? Tumor, cut it out, you know, cut and dried problem, solution, easy fix, especially for a lot of skin cancers these days where cutting it out is the solution. So the problem comes, for example, is I had a patient, transplant patient, and he had a relatively large skin cancer. It was actually basal cell carcinoma right in front of his ear. And um, the thing is, is he didn't really notice it because it was kind of flat. And as you, you mentioned the term rodent ulcer, that was sort of the colloquial name for basal cell carcinoma before, because it kind of does, it can just kind of be growing inward um, and not really outward. So the patient won't maybe necessarily notice it um, until it ulcerates. And um, so it's, when I did the biopsy, he he kind of thought I removed it all, um, which I had. And I did tell him then there are roots. We need to get take care of the roots if it is skin cancer. And when I called him, he was like, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, and I had connected with him to a certain extent in terms of emotion. And that's why I'm saying it's important. So he said, no problem, doctor. I will, I will call this number. I will get it scheduled. And then I realized that he wasn't getting it scheduled because I follow up on these things at periodic intervals. So I called him, but it was only the third time that I called him that he finally said, 
I don't think I have enough money to do this. And I only mention this because I feel comfortable with you. Um, but note that it was really only the third time that he finally felt comfortable enough to, with me. So it takes time. And so that goes back to the time constraint in dermatology that, you know, in other areas of medicine for sure. But just, you know, we do need to spend the time. And I know I don't have enough time a lot of times too. So that that's the problem. But he would not have told me that. And he would have just kept brushing me off if he didn't feel comfortable. And in the end, his insurance did cover it and everything. It was just a fear that he had that wasn't actually going to, you know, really affect him. And so the reassurance of, oh, you know, in most cases, um, most surgery is covered for a tumor like this in a transplant patient such as yourself. I don't see why it wouldn't be. Um, just call and that office can definitely tell you whether it will be covered or not. And his fears were allayed and he immediately called that day. I knew because I checked up on it and he had it scheduled. So, but I, but if I hadn't spent the time in the visit and then you know, subsequent phone calls, I wouldn't have known that. And his skin cancer would not have been treated. Yep. Well, the the benefits are, are legion, obviously for the patient. But selfishly, I, I have to say, when you've helped someone, um, my dad had a wonderful expression, the biggest compliment you can pay someone is to ask for their help. And the relationships one builds over time, the trusting relationships, friendships even, uh, with, with patients can be so rewarding for us as a profession. And, you know, this, this caricature in the lay press that doctors are dissociated and emotionally disconnected. I personally think all the good doctors that I've worked with, trained with, um, are actually really nice people and really caring people. So uh, your words really resonate. I have a final question for you, Christine. If you came across a magical genie who would grant you three wishes in healthcare, what would they be? Oh, I mean, it's hard. It's like, <laughs> but um, yeah, I would say I would want equitable care, no more misdiagnosis, and a healthcare system that truly cares about the people in it. Well, um, one of the things you mentioned was, was paying for care. Um, access to care means different things around the world. Um, sometimes like in, in the United States with a, um, a paid system, uh, that's an issue. In other places, it's shortage of doctors. In its other places, it's shortage of medicines. And sometimes it's inability to get to a doctor because of transportation issues. So I think we can all... We can all hope for those things. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Professor Christine Coe, thank you for sharing your knowledge and insights with us and for all you do for patients. And frankly, it was an utter pleasure to have you with us and, and to chat because I certainly learned a lot. Oh, well, thank you. I learned from you and I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and I really appreciate your having me on today. Oh, that's very sweet of you. So everyone, you've heard it uh, from uh, Professor Co. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Dig into the archives for a robust catalogue of prior episodes. And I have to say, for me, this is an utter joy because every week I get to meet someone intriguing, fascinating, who's dedicated their life to medicine. And um, I learn a lot and I hope you do too. So uh, until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sack here for the EMJ podcast. Please 
Stay safe. Stay well. Stay curious. Bye for now. Thank you.